I'm Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer at the Franklin Institute, and you're listening to the Travel Mug Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. <laughs> Perfect. Derek Pitts is a cool astronomer. In fact, that's his Twitter handle. He is a chief astronomer at the Franklin Institute in Center City and one of our many fascinating voices in the Delaware Valley, sort of like our own Carl Sagan or Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, we wanted to know what drove him towards science and space in the first place, what he thinks of flat earthers or other people who don't like facts anymore, if time travel is possible, you know, easy topics. Travel mug. Here we go. I'm Matt O'Donnell here in the Travel Mug Podcast. We are here with Derek Pitts, Chief Astronomer of the Franklin Institute. We are inside the Fells Planetarium. I'm holding a flashlight up so I can see. And we are going to talk space. Sure. And we're going to talk some cool stuff. And In fact, your Twitter handle is Cool Astronomer. It is. So that's true. I've come to the right place. You have, indeed. <laughs> what started it for you, Derek? And I imagine something must have happened when you were a child and you started to look up and you're like, this stuff up there, I want to know more about it. So when I was very young, Matt, I was always interested in science, in every kind of science. But what really pulled me to astronomy and space exploration was that in my childhood, the U.S. was just beginning to ramp up its space exploration program. So I was deeply interested in all things related to space exploration. I was the weird kid in my neighborhood who knew fuel and oxidizer flow rates in various kinds of rocket motors and rocket Mind engines and things like We're that. We're only a minute into this. That was me. I'm sorry. I was a nerd from the beginning. But the space exploration part really opened the window for me for astronomy. And there I began to find these really interesting questions that no one I knew could answer for me. And they became what, for me at the time, were the biggest questions anyone could answer. And uh, that intrigued me enough to want to chase this through and try to find some of those answers myself. Can I tell you what it was for me? What was it? And I, I'm pretty sure I was interested in space since I was very young. But in 1979, mm -hmm. I was in elementary school, mm -hmm. and I watched the news, and there were pictures of Jupiter like the planet Jupiter from oh, Voyager 1. yes. And I went yes. and looked back. They were black and white, yeah. mm -hmm. I guess. Right. Now we have color photos of Jupiter and even better than you can ever imagine data Absolutely. or, or uh, right. resolution. Yeah. But I looked at it, and I'm like, that's Jupiter? And there's some probe wandering around its yes. outer rings. Yes. I, I was just amazed. Yeah. And it, was, it was just so cool. Sure, sure, those pictures would have blown anybody's mind to realize that, first of all, you're looking at the biggest planet of the solar system. And second, we have these spacecraft that are out there taking these images and sending them back to us and sort of showing us what our solar system neighborhood is like. It's amazing to see that stuff. They were very impressive images. Do you remember the first time you saw Saturn in a telescope? Yes, I do remember the first time I saw Saturn in a telescope. Religious experience? I mean, for me it was, and a lot of people say it, it can be. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. The reason why I hesitate is because there are so many, like, religious moments like that for me <laughs> with astronomy and space exploration, but definitely seeing the giant planets of the solar system, Jupiter and Saturn, just, like, took the top of my head off and just, like, this, this is unbelievable. This is incredible. This is amazing. So it was that, and looking at things like the... Um, the Andromeda Galaxy, and looking at things like Uranus or Neptune, any of those things just really blew my mind. And the one thing that really got me about looking at Jupiter in particular, Matt, was that I realized that 
I was looking at the same object that Galileo observed with the first telescopes he made that proved to him that the solar system was a heliocentric system and not a geocentric Only system. The difference is he was thrown in jail and you weren't. Well, yeah, and, and I thank him for uh, blazing the trail. As they always say, the first one through the door gets shot. So uh, I'm glad Galileo took the bullet for all the rest of us. Let's talk quickly about telescopes here, particularly the 30-meter telescope, which they want to put in on the big island of Hawaii yes. on the top of Mauna Kea. Yes. You are an advisor for the construction. You're an uh, advisor to the board. Yeah, I'm actually, an, I'm actually an education outreach advisor, which puts me in close proximity to the science group that's developing the science that's going to be done, the technical group that's going to you know, put together the instrument itself, which is an amazing, amazing instrument for what it can do. And all of that information that I have access to uh, has allowed me and another group of folks that I've worked with to put together the education programs and packages, to help design education programs and packages um, for everybody else around the world to have some kind of access to the telescope. It'll be the biggest telescope that's on the Earth, correct? Single telescope. It'll be the biggest single instrument on the planet when its construction is completed in the mid-2020s, yes. And it's... It, for all intents and purposes, it's going to go on Hawaii. I know there's been some trouble, but... So there's a, there's a lot of difficulty about where that telescope is actually going to end up. The corporation itself, 30-meter telescope corporation, has uh, backup plans in case it can't end you know, up Canary at Canary Islands is one. Out in the Canary Islands, yeah, is a place where it would be accepted. But a really interesting fact about, you know, placing telescopes in various places is that Mauna Kea, not Kilauea, mm -hmm. that's currently erupting, but Mauna Kea is an extinct volcano where there have been telescopes since the 1960s. So most of the big telescopes, a lot of the big telescopes in the world are located there because the sky conditions are perfect and all those other it's sorts of things. It's near the equator. It's near the equator, but more importantly than that is that it has a laminar airflow across the Pacific Ocean that stabilizes the air above it. So not only are the skies clear and dark, but also the air above it is very stable, which lends to high-resolution uh, image capability and uh, data gathering and things like gotcha. that. So when you look at the best places around the world, Mauna Kea is one of them. The Canary Islands is another one. But right on the heels, if not about to take over those two locations, are the high desert regions in Chile, in northeastern Chile, where things are not just dark, but the resolution is fabulous. The altitude is wonderful for the telescopes, not for humans. But, uh, but that's, an, that's another really great place to, to put telescopes. 30 meter will be better than Hubble was when it was launched into space. Here's the interesting... Which is crazy because Hubble doesn't have the atmosphere to compete with. Yeah, that's right. But, it, right. but here's the thing about that. The reason why 30-meter telescope is possible is because of this really interesting blend of uh, digital imagery technology and something called adaptive optics. Adaptive optics is, a, a, is an engineering uh, workaround, if you will, to get you around the Earth's atmosphere. And here's what it does. When the telescope is used... A laser beam is, sh is shown up into the Earth's atmosphere, and it can detect, sample, and sort of characterize the turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere. Then what happens is that information is fed to a control system that fluctuates the mirror segments of the telescope to eliminate the turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere. It's like an electronic contact lens. It corrects things. It corrects for whatever atmospheric disturbance there is. Now imagine doing this 
on a mirror that's almost 100 feet in diameter, mm. and you're doing this over, what is it, 96 uh, hexagons of uh, mirror surface to make this happen. You couldn't do this unless we had digital computer technology to run the actuators to change the shape of the mirror constantly to get rid of the Earth's turbulent atmosphere, atmospheric turbulence. But in doing so, we can now make telescopes way bigger than you could conceivably launch into space. So, you know, I love Hubble Space Telescope. It's one of the greatest instruments we've ever created for scientific investigation. But for all intents and purposes, you know, it's... I'm sorry to say this, guys. It's a piece of junk now. <laughs> it's almost a piece of junk because we can make telescopes so much bigger we than... Understood, yes. Yeah. And plus they had to put a contact lens on Hubble right after it was launched. Yes, anyway, that's so. true. Right. So you're right. 30 meter will be better than Hubble 1 was when it started out. I find some irony with you. <laughs> <How's that? laughs> you went to St. Lawrence University, yes. which is upstate New York. Yeah. I used to work up in Syracuse, and I've been up through the northern New York region. Oh, my goodness. And it is fantastic yes. to look at stars. Yes. And here, here you are, the chief astronomer at the Franklin Institute in Center City, Philadelphia, where you can basically only see the moon. <laughs> we right. can see the sun, too. Right. Venus, Jupiter. You can't see, go out and see stars. True. Do you find that ironic yourself? Yes, it is ironic that I, I ended up in this place away from really dark skies, but it really feeds my mission. My mission is to get other people excited about the night sky. Most people aren't as interested in the you know, incredible details of the universe as I am, but everybody likes to see Jupiter and Saturn and the moon. So what I get to do is I get to turn on thousands and thousands of people to these really basic, gorgeous things they can see in the evening sky. Just a little bit of awareness, Matt. Look, like you said, it's the moon, it's Jupiter, it's Saturn. But on top of that, oh, and Mars, on top of that, International Space Station, meteor showers, other kinds of satellites that people can see that they will be intrigued to know that they can see if they only knew. Most people don't know that you can see International Space Station so frequently without any optical aid, but once people learn about it, they're really excited about it. That becomes a gateway, a key to open up a door through which I can help them access other knowledge about the universe that they may want to know. When we come back on the Travel Mug podcast, Derek Pitts and Truth and Lies. Intriguing. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. The Travel Mug Podcast is sort of like my busy work. It's the extra thing that, well, one of the extra things that I like to do aside from my job. But my real job, my day job, is Action News Mornings. Every weekday from 4.30 to 7 a.m., it's myself, Tamala Edwards, Karen Rogers, David Murphy. We have a lot of fun, and we tell you things that you didn't know when you went to bed. So join us every weekday on Action News Mornings. Back with Derek Pitts, and I have to be honest, one of the many reasons why I wanted to talk to you for this podcast, most of the reasons being you're a fascinating guy and you're interested in fascinating stuff, I read an article in The New Yorker, and someone went to a flat earth convention mm -hmm. and met people there, and they, the disturbing thing was a lot of them were completely normal. Yes. And there is this notion that well, I'm not going to believe that even though there's an enormous amount of science and, and experiments you can conduct yourself to prove that it is true because I just don't believe the whole story. There are people that believe that we're in a, a Truman Show type of situation and that all of this is a facade, it's a figment of our imaginations. 
And so as a, a person who relies on what you see in front of you in science and data and math, does that disturb you? What disturbs me is that our education systems haven't been able to do a good enough job to help people understand how it is we know these things are true. Nowadays, Matt, you know, we take it for granted that the scientific facts that we have that have come to us from such a long time ago are true. None of us goes out to collect empirical data on our own, for the most part. I mean, we do that if we want to buy a car or something like that, but to understand what the shape of the earth is, what the distances around the solar system are like, and those kinds of things, we don't do that work ourselves. So what happens is we have to depend on an authority figure that we know and trust. Nowadays, there are so many quote-unquote authority figures that present themselves as such through social media and other means that people can pick and choose what they want to believe that makes them feel comfortable. And you're talking about people who may be elected or may not be, just may be popular on YouTube or whatever. It's, it's, it's all across the board. Sure, you can be elected, you can be popular on YouTube, you can be popular anywhere. And as long as people want to hear what you have to say, then you can create a following. But the real thing that we have to recognize is that the universe is as it is. This planet is the shape that it is, and the universe doesn't really care whether we believe it or understand it or not. So the universe will go on without us. But if we want to be part of the universe in a way that is meaningful and we can actually improve ourselves as humans because we understand a little bit about the universe, then we have to trust that the universe is presenting us with real data, real true facts. So, for example... I mean, the idea that people thought some time ago that the sun went around the Earth, I mean, that's what it looks like from the planet. For all intents and purposes, you go outside, the apparent view is that the sun crosses the sky, when in reality it's the Earth that rotates from west to east, and so it makes the sun appear to go from east to west. But if you didn't dig up the, if you didn't go chase down the empirical data yourself, then you'd have a, a, you'd have a grave misunderstanding of how the universe works. So is it a matter of people finding the right people to trust, or is it a matter of people who have the power of influence being more trustworthy, or, well, or both? Well, it's, it's both. It's both, because not only do you have to find an authority figure that you will trust, but if leadership points you in the direction, then we have to go, we should trust the people that we've chosen to be leaders to take us in the correct direction. And as we can easily see, if you look throughout history, there are plenty of examples where a leader will take people in the wrong direction. It, it's not unusual that it happens, but what really has to happen is that the people who elect or select the leader have to have enough common sense and have to have enough knowledge and education themselves to understand who it is they're electing and for what reasons. Let's blow this discussion into something completely groovy. <laughs> Let's do right. that. Here we go. So yeah. on the issue of reality, yes. Truman Show type of stuff, yes. we have heard people such as Neil deGrasse Tyson, very famous astrophysicist up in Brooklyn. Who? <laughs> I'm sorry. You're much better. I'm just kidding, Neil. Elon Musk, yes. uh, Tesla, SpaceX, have both said, you know what? It's kind of possible and maybe even 50% likely that we are actually living in a simulation, something that was set up by someone else, a higher intelligence, and we are acting through things, and it's sort of like Shakespeare to them. Yeah. All the world's a stage. You know, I 
the human mind is an amazing object. It's an amazing thinking machine. We can, we can be deductive. We can be inductive. We can be reasonable. We can be illogical. And we can fold all of those into a human self. And if we look throughout history, at, in almost any corner mat, we can see the incredible creative ability of humans from all across the scale. So the idea that we could imagine that this is a Truman Show type setup in which we are merely players, you know, reminds me of uh, one of the old, um, you know, Greek hero movies I saw when I was a kid where the Greek gods were sitting in a room up on Mount Olympus and they had a little pool of water with boats in it and they would kick rocks down. And the reality of the, of the movie was that this was what was happening to Jason and the Argonauts or something like that. Well, I think it's great that we can think of things like that. But is it that way? Yeah, is it that way? And, the, and what we can deal with is the real information that we have. And this is, a, this is a world where Hawking and Einstein, some of the greatest minds we've ever known, worked with what information we have. This is very much akin to asking the question of, what was around before the universe was here? Well, we can, we can come up with all kinds of great yes, ideas about sure. that, right? We can say that this is a multi-universe you know, existence and there are lots of other universes. But the problem is that we have no information about that. So we have no information about the possibility that this is a staged situation. All we have is the information we have here. So what should we do? Should we chase around the idea of some kind of reality that's beyond our ability to understand because we have no information? Or should we use what information we have about the environment we're in to create a reality that's really wonderful? I'm after let's create a reality that's really wonderful. It doesn't do me any good, Matt, to speculate about whether or not this is a staged situation when, in fact, I can get on a plane and I can go to Hawaii and I can lay on a beautiful beach and be perfectly happy. So don't worry about the things you have no control over. Skip that. <laughs> Skip that. Grab a beer. Go find a place to chill out and enjoy the view and think about stuff like that just to exercise your creative abilities but don't, I, I, for me, I don't want to put a tremendous amount of time into that because there are too many other fabulous phenomenon in this world, in this universe, for me to try to understand and appreciate. I mean, what's, what's, better, than, what's better than a rainbow? What's better than northern lights? What's better than looking at the Grand Canyon from the North Rim? Chill out, people. <laughs> Chillax. Let's just chillax, Matt. That, no, uh, in, for real for me, this world, this universe is full of all kinds of phenomenon that are just stunningly gorgeous and challenging to understand. That's where I am. Other people who might have the capability to think on much higher planes than I do, you know, you're welcome to it. But I'm thinking, you know, a beer on a beach, I'm good going to time travel next you ready for that? that right after the break music for the travel mug podcast provided by a pregnant light one of my favorite bands soulful emotional authentic that's big with me authentic extreme purple metal as damien mastered the band leader likes to call it purple metal you can listen to APL on Bandcamp. 
Back with Derek Pitts, Travel Mug Podcast, Time Travel. Is it possible? And if so, there are some problems with people's timelines changing, and that was supposed to have already happened. So how do you... How do you resolve all that stuff? So here's the wishful thinking answer. The wishful thinking answer is, yes, time travel is possible. We can go forward. We can go backward. We can go back in time and fix things we messed up so we can set things up for the future so everything will be great. Wow, that'd be fabulous. Uh, uh, There's one problem here, and that is that uh, Einstein pointed out that time moves in one direction, and that is forward. We can't go back in time. So that sort of complicates things a little bit, Matt. We can't actually go back and fix anything. But if we were to actually look at the idea of time travel, there are some sticky wicket problems. If you go back in time and try to change something, well, you don't really know all of the different effects that that one event that you're changing has on everything else. So that one change could affect everything about the future. So it could be that if you go back in time to fix something, When you end up going back to the future, not only is the world entirely different, but you might not exist. You could take yourself out because of this effect that you had in the past. Because you don't know all the different effects that your presence will have on everything else. So you're fracturing possibilities and you're creating new timelines? Perhaps. You are yes. You are creating new timelines. You're creating a you're you're sort of changing the course of a river. Let's say you know we have the Mississippi River flowing from the northern portion of the United States all the way down to the south, emptying into the Gulf of Mexico, as we all know. You come along with a bulldozer. You travel back in time. You take your bulldozer and you push the Mississippi River so that it points west toward California. Back in time, you change a little something to fix something about you want to fix about the future. Well, the course of the Mississippi River now cuts across the United States in a totally different way and affects lives totally differently here than what happened down there in New Orleans. You've now created a whole mess in New Orleans. That's what you've done on the timeline is you've now created a new timeline. And every time you've sort of fixed something in the past, you're creating a new timeline that's going in a different direction with completely different situations and outcomes. Well, that completely messes up where you are now. So you might think you can fix something or change something for the better in the future for you when you get there, but the reality is that many, many, many things could be completely different to the point where you're not even in the future at all. It seems like you buy the idea of parallel universes and maybe infinite possibilities being possible and having happened and I buy the idea, theoretically, that we can think about things like that. Sure, I love that idea. It's another one of those chill-out things. Yeah, you know, so, so it's like this, Matt. We can think of all these different possibilities, and what they do for us is they open up opportunities for us to think that things can be different in one way or another. It gives us an opportunity to imagine an improved reality, something that's different from what we have now or changed reality somehow. And we as humans really like that kind of thing because what it does for us is it gives us comfort that we can change something for a different outcome. That's what we like. But the problem is that in reality, time is what it is. It flows in one direction. If you'd like to affect the flow of time now, do something today. Do something today. Now, just thinking about changing a timeline doesn't help us at all. But if you actually choose to do something today, here's a really good example. Everybody this summer go to the beach and everybody pick up three pieces of trash. What that means is that at the end of the summer, the beach is going to be completely clean. 
that's actually doing something to affect a future timeline. Exactly. But I can't say I'm going to go back in time and stop the production of plastic bottles. What is your favorite sci-fi movie of all time? (laughs) I'll tell you mine. Yeah, what? You can think. 2001 Space Odyssey. That's what I was going to say. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 2001 Space Odyssey. Isn't it crazy? It's very Stanley Kubrick. Yes, it and is. It very is much so. So little dialogue. Yeah, because that's what he wants to get inside your head, sort of mess you up about what could possibly be, and leave open the door for you to speculate about what all this stuff means. Because I think Kubrick realizes that in your head is the place where the greatest fantasies develop. He can present you with something, but then that sets what it is. What he did in that movie, I think, was to open the door for all of us to imagine ourselves what these things could mean. When I first saw the ending, I was like, what just happened? (laughs) It took me 15 (laughs) years to figure out anything about that. Why is the old man in this room with lights on the floor and he's having tea and the baby's floating around? Right, exactly. (laughs) And then the guy in the spaceship, the spacesuit is standing there looking at him. Yeah, that really blew my mind. And TV it took a show. while time for me to favorite get sci-fi to that. Favorite show. sci-fi TV show. I, I think I have to say my favorite sci-fi TV show uh, has always been Star Trek. Yeah, I yeah. figured you'd mention that one. Yeah, that's a, I was that was a really good that, one. Either that or Twilight Zone. And then I got thinking, I'm like, you know what? Black Mirror is now my new favorite because it's so possible. Isn't that incredible? Black Mirror to me, is the new version of The Outer Limits and The Twilight Zone mixed together with a digital layer on top. Like, Mm. I better watch out for my phone because it might do something to me. Yeah, they say this is what could happen in 15 minutes. So here's a question for you. What's your favorite science fiction writer? Philip K. Dick. Ooh, really? And... Is H.P. Lovecraft? H.P. Lovecraft. He, he kind of yeah. exists in some. that realm a little yeah, bit. Yeah, he's in that I'll realm. I'll go with that. Yeah, How right. Uh, so I am Ray Bradbury, classic, uh, Jack Chalker, Midnight at the Well of Souls, and uh, Isaac Asimov. Ah, uh, I was going to say. For that. the trilogy. Oh, I like the final question. Really? Yes. You know, we did, that, we did that here as a planetarium show years ago. People who are listening, just read it. It's a short story. It's a short story. It will it's blow really cool your mind. One. And I think it, t- it talks a lot about the simulation thing discussion that we just had. Yes. All right. Favorite song, album of all time that is science, like star astronomy related? This is a tough one. Not for <laughs> me. Jefferson Starship blows against the Empire. Uh, uh, that might be before your time. <laughs> Uh, it may or may not. (laughs) I'm going to go Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. I know that's an an album, not an actual song. But I love it because it also represents how little we truly understand about what happens out there because there is no Dark Side of the Moon. True. The other side sometimes gets light, sometimes it's dark, and it's the same with the side that we see. It's true. And so... It's true. The reason, why, the reason why I like the Jefferson Starship Blows Against the Empire is because the second side of that album entertains the possibility of a generation spacecraft in which a group of people get aboard a starship and they travel out into the universe to establish a human colony someplace else. You are a cool astronomer. That's why I have <laughs> the moniker. You bet. Derek Pitt's chief astronomer here at Franklin Institute. Thanks so much for joining us on the Travel Mug Podcast. Do you want to go to Mars right now? Let's go.
I'll let some. I'll let somebody else go first. <laughs> Test the water. And then I'll go. Sure, I have somebody in mind I'd like to send. In fact, but uh, we'll let that go for right now. Yeah, uh, you know what? As long as you can figure out how to get there in a shorter amount of time, then I'm interested in going. Okay. Yeah. Matt Damon, you go first, and then we'll figure it out. Let him figure out. out how to grow the potatoes. Yes. And yeah. Make sure you have sour cream. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Potatoes just by themselves are not very tasty. I'm not thinking the sour cream is going to help a whole lot in the case of those potatoes. But if you got to exist, okay, fine. But, uh, you know, I hear Domino's delivers. <laughs> Come see Mr. Pitts here at the Franklin Institute. Please see you later. Me. Travel mug over and out.